Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. This time, we're looking back into our archive to November 2018 and our Composer Focus series, as Edward Seckerson and countertenor Yesin Davis delve into the life and music of composer George Frederick Handel. Hello and welcome. I'm Edward Seckerson, and with me today is countertenor Yesin Davis. Our subject, George Frederick Handel. Yes, and it could have been considered bad timing to be born in the same year as J.S. Bach, if you're a composer. But Handel more than held his own in that era. I mean, you're biased, obviously, because you're a singer, but where do you put him in the pantheon of Baroque greats? Um, I think certainly uh, the top, alongside Bach, um, anybody who doesn't know Bach or Handel probably does without realising they've heard their music at some point, whether it be on television or in a film um, or just on the radio. But I would say they, they both um, achieved that sort of top ranking in Baroque, in Baroque music in, in similar but also very different ways. Handel spent most of his time working in the theatre and working uh, in the sort of secular world and Bach worked in the sacred world most of the time. Um, we don't believe that they ever met. They were close to meeting. Um, and I think just the nature of their jobs and the, where, where that took them on their journey, and in Handel's case it, it's sort of via Italy and then eventually to England, um, but through the theatre world and through patrons who paid him to write music for their, their sort of courts, I suppose, and, and in England in particular for the court and for the... For the um, what we'd call the West End now. Mm. Yeah, we, we tend to forget how practical... Yeah, these these composers were of that era, and they they saw where the demand was, and they went for it. And Handel, I mean, created what three opera companies in London to to f- provide for the the rich and yeah. the elite and the um, opera loving upper classes. And I think it's it's important to remember that what we consider as a composer these days, or as a musician in general, is very different to what was happening in the eighteenth century. Um, 
you know, musicians weren't necessarily uh, just given one job, one job title. So today you might say I'm a violinist in the London Symphony Orchestra, but uh, a violinist back then might have also been a composer, might have also been um, a, uh, a dancer. Um, and so Handel was playing to his strengths, writing for the theatre, but so was Bach, um, writing for the church. And um, I think if they'd been alive today, they would have been the Thomas Adders, the George Benjamins of their day. The music would have been as, um, as I suppose, as inventive, as different, um, but would have sounded much more like music we're used to hearing today. Mm. Um, if you go back and listen to music not by Bach and not by Handel, by some of the minor composers of the Baroque period, it sort of sounds like pastiche of Handel, but not as good. Yeah. So I think, in a way, whilst they're writing at the time in a style that we associated with the 18th century, they are still, had you gone back then, they are the revolutionary composers who really um, made their business um, successful. But at the same time, that it really comes from a true place. Bach and Handel came, it came from a, a, a special place, whether it be in their soul, or whether mm. they had a gift. Statistics are staggering. I mean, 42 operas, 29 oratorios, 120 cantatas. I mean, those are probably rough figures. There were the concerti grossi, organ concertos, and the two greatest hits, the, the water music and the fireworks music, the music for the royal fireworks, um, which is especially sensational, I think, in its supersized wind version. But most importantly, it was about the voice, really. And um, so... As a composer for the voice, what sets him apart um, from a singer's point of view? Um, I think Handel had, without it sounding glib, he had a gift for a tune. Um, now, that's quite a difficult thing, as any successful pop musician will tell you, to come up with a good tune. Um, essentially, pop music runs off tunes. Without a tune, there's nothing. And... There's lots of Baroque music that's very beautiful but doesn't necessarily have a tune um, to remember by. And as a singer, when you're given a tune, it it's just lifts everything off the page straight away. Um, and what was what, what was great for me about coming to singing and learning uh, how to sing through Baroque music, through Handel, was the, the way in which he connects with you um, through the through the tune and through that tune's connection to the harmony underneath. So he's he's able to move you in a very sort of suspicious way. You can't mm -hmm. quite work it out, but mm -hmm. it, it sort of takes it beyond any other composer of the time. Um, he sets words uh, well in terms of he understands how the voice works. So in some of the fast arias you get to sing, you have these runs, which are called coloratura runs, and he understands that certain vowels work better for a singer on these fast runs. And you find that out when you translate them into English, for example, at English National Opera, where they do everything in English, and you, you, have, to, you have to find the right words to fit the difficult technical demands. Mm -hmm. And you, you start to realise how Handel completely understood this. He also worked so closely with the singers in his companies, in his opera companies, that he was able to tailor, make each aria for specific singers. So you, you have a, a, 
a broad um, repertoire of music written for a specific singer. And I know, for example, that if I sing an aria that's written for the castrato senesino, it'll fit my voice. I don't need to actually check up on it before. I know that I open this opera, there'll be a load of arias I can sing. Um, and likewise, there are, there are some castrati he wrote for who were higher uh, in, in their voice than senesino. And so for me, that's not necessarily something I'd sing. Um, so he, and so he, yeah, and subsequently, uh, the public got to know these singers. Um, uh, they were the pop stars of their day, weren't they? I mean, they were hugely important and influential. That's changed a bit, although we still yeah. some, there are still the operatic superstars. But they were phenomenally famous. Yes, I think they were. I suppose you could say pop stars, but I more like film stars. I think because. Not everybody was able to go and see them uh, in the flesh because not everybody went to the opera. Um, but they, they sort of held that place that I suppose the celebrity gossip magazines would hold today of, of a celebrity um, just because of the, the tales of their enormous fees or their mm-hmm. sort of diva tantrums or um, in some cases just leaving the country altogether to go and do Farinelli famously left. Um, the London opera scene after only two seasons to go and sing for the King of Spain where he stayed for 20 years um, so if you imagine that today it's, it's like a footballer turning up to a um, you know Manchester United having paid 70 million or something and the next season just disappearing and saying actually I've had enough don't like Mourinho I'm, I'm going <laughs> um, and uh, the difficulty for Handel of course was to hold on to these singers and to, and to find replacements when they, when they left and Again, that's that's all to do with the busy, business acumen. So there was rival opera companies, um, and bums on seats really ruled the day. And when that didn't happen, opera, opera seasons were ruined and careers were ruined, and Handel lost money and theatres closed, and he had to change tactic, mm-hmm. uh, which he did. benefit of those who still find the business of voice types in baroque opera confusing including us probably yeah. um, the countertenor has assumed roles normally written for the female alto uh, or the male castrato yeah. is that a fair summation it's a fair summation um, in a nutshell countertenors sing in their falsetto range uh, we know them really from the cathedral and chapel choirs of this country in the choral scene and since the 1950s they've been um, uh, much more prevalent on the operatic and the concert stage because of um, the interest in music from the 18th to 17th century um, and composers such as Benjamin Britten and Michael Tippett Mm -hmm. bringing back the interest in this music and saying well what kind of voice did we hear then we certainly had a man standing on stage so we want to see a man and we want to hear a man but we don't have castrato anymore so we'll, we'll use the falsetto voice now that's led to people assuming that countertenors um, are the automatic choice for these roles, but they're not because, as you said, they were written for men who were castrated or women playing trouser roles. However, that um, leads me to add that Handel did work with countertenors, and in quite a few dramatic, as in operatic sort of situations, 
in the later oratorios, he wrote specifically for a countertenor. So okay. kind of Jephthah, um, some of the Messiah arias he's performed with countertenors. Um, there's a number of oratorios in which that's semile, um, which a countertenor would have featured as a soloist. So it's not completely inconceivable that the had the castrati not been around, there might have been a sort of equivalent in the countertenor range. Mm. This distinction between opera and oratorio has become less pronounced in the modern mm. age because we have a whole range of creative directors, yeah. um, for better or worse, um, whose imaginations can run riot on a piece that was normally performed in concert. Mm. Um, um, is that a good thing? Um, I think anything's a good thing where it brings more um, light to a piece. Um, in the case of the Handel Oratorios, actually I find them more dramatic than mm. the operas. The operas, to me, feel very stop-start and very static in places. The, the arias themselves are wonderful and very moving, but as, as, a, as a, a whole sort of thoroughly composed evening, I find them less convincing. Often they deal with slightly unbelievable subjects and the drama towards the end has to sort of hurry up to find a moral or, or to get everyone wedded off or to, to bring back the dead people so they can sing in the chorus. <laughs> Whereas the oratorios generally are based on biblical stories which um, are in themselves you know, stories of thousands of years mm. of, of history, of, of, of storytelling. And Handel deals with them in a, in a very different way. And perhaps that says something about his own religious convictions, I don't know. Um, but I find that for a modern director to get their hands on the oratorios um, gives them, in a way, more license to, to, um, to bring theatrical and directing um, styles to them that you than you can do with the, with the operas. I think they, they lend some more interesting interpretations. Yes. I mean, you mentioned how ludicrous the plots can be, but always the emotions are very real, and that's, yeah. that's why they work so well still. And I think we, we put on a... You know, that's me putting on a demand on opera based on a 21st century point of view, which is that I don't think in Handel's time they would have... I wouldn't say they wouldn't have cared so much about the whole arc of the evening as we do when we look at a, a piece of theatre nowadays. We want to we want to sort of believe that these characters are actually there, and I think sometimes you can you can miss the point. With Handel, it was about saying, "Here's a character who, in four minutes, is going to express and investigate the emotion of grief or mm. love or loss, but in a very sort of um, under the microscope." way um, and what happens with the oratorios is it's a bit more thoroughly composed so that you might not get a style of aria called the Dal Kappa where you go back and sing the opening tune again which in opera happens all the time yeah. whereas in the oratorio Handel started to move the drama on mm. there was a lot more choruses involved and perhaps some of the arias were shorter so that the emotion expressed is much more about the uh, about getting the story on mm. to the next uh, onto the next section um, and going back to what we were saying about his, his working with singers and understanding the voice, he understood also that by doing this and moving the drama on, he stopped the singers from um, indulging. Right. Because the singers tended to indulge, they tended to ornament too much, they tended to um, request arias that weren't written for them, 
uh, for the opera to be sung and they, they, they'd come along and say I'll only sing in this if you bring this aria in because it's a successful one of mine <laughs> and I think this yeah. this eventually yeah. got on Handel's wick and he he, um, he he really turns the screw when it comes to oratorio and he says this is much more about the drama it's something that later composers such as Gluck understood completely and changed the form of opera Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Can we conclude, Yesin, by uh, just talking briefly about his most famous piece, which is the Messiah, um, which most singers of your ilk... Uh, probably roll out a couple of times a year, or certainly at Christmas, yeah. um, or whenever. Um, do, do you do it often, and do you ever tire of it? Because what makes it so so iconic? Well, I, I do do it often, but it's it's mostly in December. It is really a, a sort of Lent and Easter piece such but um that's not the way it's done there so traditionally it's done at christmas um and i it's the one it's the only piece that i perform where i write in inside the score how many times or where i've done it and who with i just decided to keep a record because i thought i'll be doing it quite a lot and it, it's turned out that it is that I've, I've done it probably about i don't know 100 times and that um since 2005 uh but i for that reason i don't really Weirdly, I don't tire because because we don't do it between January and November. Generally, if you do, maybe once in March or something. Um, so it's 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 nice. It's sort of like seeing a, a best friend who you don't need to talk to every day, and then you turn up in December and you, and you you sit down and remember old stories from last December and you chat about that. It's very it's very like that, and it, it's sort of 
sits in the voice again without having to do too much work. Is, is it familiarity with the piece that makes it um, so loved by the public, um, do you think? A bit, but I think you, think you can go to it maybe one or two times, maybe the second time you hear it. There's, uh, it's the genius of Handel in which he very subtly um, draws you into the, the whole drama of the piece. And I think it, it would be putting Handel down to say it's just familiarity, because of it, I think that's true of all Handel, the, the familiarity, um, with, especially with his operas, which are kind of long and... Um, not always full of great arias. Familiarity makes you think it's a better piece. Um, but, you know, for example, doing Handel's Saul at Glyndebourne, I love, that's my favourite of Handel's oratorios. I absolutely love it. But I can understand why somebody coming to hear it for the first time would say, OK, well, a few listens and I might get it, but there's only one really famous aria in it, O Lord Who's Most Numberless, which thankfully I get to sing. But but for me, it's sort of the choruses that lift it. It's wonderful. I think that's the same with Messiah. It's got... Mm it's got that sort of rousing chorus element to it, which an audience feel like they are singing along, even though they're not, especially in the Hallelujah Chorus, where I suspect most people are in their heads trying to sing along, and often audiences do try and sing along uh, when they're not invited to, but that's actually wonderful, and it, nobody ever questions that, and it wouldn't... It would be strange if people started doing that in, I don't know, Elijah or something. Um, it just sort of happens in the sign, it's accepted. Um, and we take it for granted, and we shouldn't, because it's something very special that Handel's done there to make everybody feel part of it without them having to take part. what Handel's very good at which is the way he manages drama and tension and climax and release and you'll find this in a lot of his pieces but obviously in Messiah which is more familiar he builds the music and the, the drama to a point where you think it's the end and then just as you're about to climax he stops everything and puts in a beautiful aria such as I know that my redeemer liveth or if God be for us just at these peaks and creates what you think is a trough. You think, oh, time is stopping. Um, but it's exactly what he wants you to think, because he wants you to stop. He's got you in the palm of his hand, and you listen to this most wonderful piece of text delivered to a most wonderful tune. And then he builds back into a big, rousing chorus. It's not your, um, I suppose, it's not necessarily fireworks and glitter, but a much more um, sincere piece of music, which just sends you off on a, a huge high. And... I think that always reminds me of how people describe a DJ who plays a crowd and is able to manage a number of records and mix them in such a way that he builds a whole evening and he's playing it over, he or she is playing it over several hours in a club. And you hear people saying that, you know, they like a particular DJ because they understand uh, the, the crowd in front of them and yet they're not speaking to them, they can just see a, a swathe of people. And they will build an evening around some climactic point, and it might be three in the morning, it might be four in the morning, but they very carefully manage all the, the beats, the speed of the music, um, the, the 
keys in which they're playing things and then they cleverly mix them in such a way that you have highs and lows and highs and lows and then this very big high and Handel in a way does exactly that he manages all the expectations of the audience and he manages to bring you in and let you down and bring you back up again and Bach and him both have this uh, fascinating way of doing that and I feel that the, the chorus at the end of the Messiah, the big Amen chorus for me is on a parallel with the end of the Bach B minor mass and the two pieces climax in such a way that the B minor mass has the beautiful Arnie's Day solo for the countertenor or the alto soloist which in a way is that moment where the tension is just released and held and you're left with this beautiful slow tune and you, you just wanted the piece to finish and then he gives you gold and then there's this wonderful climactic sort of fugal chorus at the end and the same thing happens with Messiah um, and there's a there's a wonderful bar right at the end where this pedal seventh happens and it just for me that's rather cheesily where Christmas begins <laughs> on the last page <laughs> Davis and Edward Seckerson. In the next episode of our Composer Focus series, baritone Roderick Williams joins us to talk about the one and only Benjamin Britten. The first thing is that I come to him with my composer's hat on rather than a singer's hat on. I think he was the composer who first first woke me up to classical music in a way. Until then, thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete from the Barbican. You can subscribe on Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if possible, leave us a review to help us inspire more people to discover and love the arts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.